Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Going well, thank you, Ed. Although I'm not sure that I will be heading to a beach anytime soon. There is at least one uh, that, that makes you age rapidly mm. as soon as you step on. And I would argue that is any beach if you don't wear the correct uh, sun protection factor. Yeah. Apply. Um, where me and me and Baz Lerman. If you didn't listen to Baz, you've got to listen to me. Um, so yeah, just looking forward to uh, staying by safe bodies of water. Plus, you know, sand it just gets everywhere. But you know, other than that, I'm I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, uh, probably gonna stick to some coves, um, <laughs> grottos. I think grottos seem fine. Santa's got a grotto, so. <laughs> And yeah, and there's definitely no sound there, unless, you know, it's during the summer months when he's he's away, when he's trying to get away from the cold up north. Uh, no, I'm fine. Uh, I am somewhat in a better mood this week than I was a week ago. If, if we'd spoken a week ago, I would have been full in the uh, post-Space Jam, a new legacy depression that sunk over me for the better part of last week. <laughs> where uh, I started to doubt whether cinema was a good idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, I watched that movie last week when it came out on HBO Max, and I don't know, it's one of the more dispiriting experiences that I've ever had watching a movie. You know, uh, I said on, on Letterboxd that it almost makes me want to defend the original, which was itself an affront to Christ. And uh, I stand by that, like the first Space Jam was no great work of art, but it kind of pretended to be a movie. <laughs> it had like a three act structure. It set things off and paid them off in the third act. And this is really just the thinnest of gossamer reasons for trying to explain, for, for WB to show off how much IP they own. And it's just wretched and just it's so boring so unfun um lebron james is terrible in it uh which is a shame because i thought he was really fun and really charismatic in train wreck and obviously just like as a person he's very charismatic and engaging but it really doesn't feel like a movie that has any reason to exist it 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 is, doesn't do anything particularly good with the Looney Tunes themselves. It doesn't even really do anything good with the IP that it kind of like crams in other than a sequence where all the Looney Tunes characters are like dropped into Casablanca for a scene or Mad Max Fury Road for a scene. Once that's done, and that happens in the first third, like the back half, all of the various IP characters they have are just background extras for the big game that takes up half of the... The filming is also incredibly boring and not shot particularly well. Yeah, there's just like, just nothing to recommend it. It's such a dreadful, dreadful movie. And it's not like I went in with like particularly high expectations or even much of an interest in the franchise other than the fact that I had watched the original a few times as a kid. But like, it really was shocking how 
quite how soulless it is and how little effort it felt like anyone had put into the thing. Also, like, who is this film for? Mm. Because, and then it's like, oh, cool. So what is this like a babe two pig in the city kind of deal? Um, but the thing that really made me laugh was that it seemed like they were trying to do that because I saw the full title and it's like Space Jam to a new legacy. Mm. I was like, this it's almost like take $10, go see a space jam. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> why, why this sort of lofty sequel title? And oh yeah, oh, it just sounds really hollow. And I guess for LeBron James, maybe he can act as long as he's acting with people. It seems yeah. like maybe it's just been too difficult. It just, you know, you stare into the tennis ball long enough and it stares back. You know, mm-hmm. As Nietzsche said, oh, blunt. <laughs> Yeah, and also, like, I would say half the movie he's animated because once he goes into and into Looney Tunes world, he becomes a cartoon, which itself breaks the rules of the first film because yeah. uh, Michael Jordan, of course, was uh, always a human in that one. And, like, voiceover and acting is its own separate skill and it's a very different thing to do. I didn't see, despite how much I love the, uh, the song that it inspired, I never saw Smallfoot so I don't know how good he was as Guanji. But, you know, it's a difficult thing to do to just like to act and project and provide all those emotions and sense of fun just through your voice. And he's just like, he just comes off as really flat whenever he has to do the animated parts. And you're, you're right, you know, like so much of the movie is him acting against people who and characters who aren't there. And that's just like a, a very difficult thing to do. Like maybe if they'd got Bill Hader to play them all, things mm-hmm. would have things would have worked out a little better on that front. And also, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about <laughs> Space Jam 2 because <laughs> uh, it doesn't really warrant it. But the thing about it that I found like really galling is that it starts by arguing against its own existence because the plot of the movie is kicked off when LeBron is brought into a meeting at Warner Brothers to be sold his involvement with an algorithm called Algorithm, played by Don Cheadle, as his name is pronounced in Barb and Sargo de Vista Del Mar. And he is basically told, hey, we've got this, uh, this idea, this algorithm, it will drop you uh, into all of these properties that Warner Brothers owns. And then uh, LeBron says, that sounds terrible, which of course it is. And then also the rest of the movie is kind of built on the idea that, oh, it's terrible that this algorithm wants to kind of take all of these properties and bash them together. And then like, but that's what the movie is. That's also kind of what the like executives at AT&T who own Warner Brothers or, you know, did. I don't even know if they still own it anymore. I don't know how that merger with Discovery kind of affects these sort of things. But like, that's kind of what they want. They want to kind of create this thing where everything is Fortnite and you can just kind of like cram properties together. So like that level of disingenuousness where the whole movie was arguing that the thing it is is terrible whilst also being the thing it is which is terrible was just like so boundlessly cynical in a way that, yeah, just kind of like set my teeth on edge and, you know, I didn't unclench my jaw for like four days because I was just kind of like, after watching it, thinking like, yeah, just like movie, movies were a mistake. Movies were a mistake. <laughs> also, I know it's not a documentary shot for everyone to know, but that's also not how an algorithm works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also a lot of it is about video games and like, 
I know a thing or two about video games. <laughs> I know a thing or two about how video games are made. So like a lot of that as well, just kind of like really uh, annoyed me. <laughs> just like, but I, I get if the movie was better, that stuff wouldn't annoy me. You know, like I like Mythic Quest, and that's not a particularly accurate televisual kind of representation of what the games industry is like. But it's funny and enjoyable, so I let that stuff slide. So you know, like, so the fact that it's kind of knowledge of the video game industry and how that works uh, seems like uh, uh, faulty at best is really just kind of like sprinkled on top of the general shit sandwich that the whole thing is. But yeah, let's talk about real cinema. So the Cannes Film Festival happened, and this Jam swept the board. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think if if Space Jam played there because, like, they do occasionally have like one big kind of like silly. Hollywood movie there and I can't remember what it was this year I don't think it was Space Jam I imagine the renting of garments on the croissette would have been just like so so memed that it, I would have noticed yeah so can happened this year and the, the bunch of uh, awards have been handed out by uh, the jury which was headed by Spike Lee and generally seemed to uh, confound people uh, in some ways which I think uh, is the right tack for can to take uh, it's always fun when the choices they make seem to be counterintuitive or at the very least are kind of interesting and not anointing like the latest super middle brow thing that you know polite society will all be gushing about in six months time. Absolutely and I think it seems like can have actually taken on board the hefty amount of criticism they were getting I mean I remember over the past five six years of being too American too commercialized not about the art anymore basically Mm. and what's so exciting is that it seems like yeah I mean I guess you you solve this by getting Spike Lee and a bunch of a a really fantastically diverse selection of people from not only you know America but like all across Europe and further afield is that a bad thing to say further afield am I being very Eurocentric probably am sorry everyone but a fantastic group of people um who i think genuinely really just seem to this sounds really factory but like love film Mm -hmm. i think there's something really interesting about the can jury and that it is different every year and i really like that i like that what they're trying to do is essentially well these of of the moment Mm. for such uh, the, the bizarrest moment that we're in you know, of course, we actually have a collection of really different, yeah, pre- pretty, pretty fucking different <laughs> stuff, which I find really, really heartening. And I'm really looking forward to seeing this crop of films because I think this is also one of the major, one of the first major film festivals sort of back in person. I feel quite mm. nervous hearing about how many people will probably test positive for COVID in the next couple of weeks because it did not look like anything was particularly different. Um, Some people were wearing masks, but we'll see. But I think it's interesting that it becomes this kind of, you know, you look at a lot of the films that are there and I think, I guess, particularly thinking about Annette, you know, the new Leos Carrick's film, Mm. uh, featuring a um, uh, Adam Driver singing while diving, shall I say. Mm. Um, Of course, I, and I feel a lot of people are very interested in seeing, but that, that, that is, you know, 
a Marion Cotillard and uh, Sparks. So there's this real kind of, it feels less like domination, more like a real collaboration between kind of European and American cinema, which I'm all for. Yeah, can we kick it, Ed? Yes, we can. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very excited to see Annette. That was probably my most anticipated movie of the year. That and uh, Benedetta, the uh, new Paul Verhoeven lesbian nun movie, which just just that log line alone it's like cool i'm excited to see what he does with that it feels like something jack doherty would say as to why he had to like pull more money from tgs like i guess <laughs> all the homes lesbian nun movie and you're like yeah of course that completely tracks he's also he's got to the point where he's managed to satirize so good people yeah every time i want to say benedetta i also have to check myself and realize i'm not saying bayonetta um, <laughs> which also very sexual <laughs> work, very provocative work, but very different, very different medium and kind of going for a very different vibe. Um, but yeah, uh, I, 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 yeah, the thing I'm excited about for Annette as well is like, it seems to have been very divisive in the reviews. Like the reviews pretty much are just, this was terrible. I can't believe like Leos Carax has done something like this and people saying like, this is like an incredible work of cinema and like those are always the movies that I will hew towards because I'm just like yeah I need to know what side of the divide I fall on this. Um, oh. And Cam's always so fun I feel like you know for so many sort of like shockers and stuff it's always people were fainting at Cam. I feel mm. like any like any journos and, and reviewers who are at Cam are like it's somehow they are able to be even more expressive <laughs> in their opinion. Um, mm. So I'm hearing about very things and also that you know the palm door julia I, i'm sorry i'm stumbling because i feel like i'm gonna mispronounce her second name Dukuna. that's how i've heard it pronounced right thank you um you know the, the palm door winner uh titan titan uh you know at its first screening people were like openly laughing mm. but i also remember that story that jonathan glazer said when he first screened under the skin i think half of cinema like walked out and the other half gave like a standing ovation and he was like yes this is what I feel like a can audience is a really good like I find that it's a good gauge because it tends to be more in alignment with like my taste but I guess mm. it's just it's so passionate you know and I think um it's amazing to see people really care and again about the art because it's not really about like selling I don't know, maybe maybe it's the true meaning of cinema, Ed. Well, we can we can only hope. Um, <laughs> also, like, I think it, it cannot be overstated just, like, how much the whole, po like, not post-pandemic, but, like, post the worst of the pandemic um, aspect of it, I think, probably played into a lot of people. Like, like you said, this was one of the first major film festivals to come back in a huge way. And yeah, I, I have to assume that a lot of people were just kind of like really operating at a high emotional like uh, state throughout of you know, watching the movies, which you, I think probably explains some of the extremeness of the responses of people, which has been like, oh my God, we're finally doing this again. And then, you know, everything you love or hate, <laughs> you kind of like love or hate more intensely as a result. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, hopefully some of those movies will make their ways to a, a theatre near me in the near future. 
So we'll go on to the uh, main topic for this week. It's another show and tell episode in which we bring something to the table that uh, we've seen recently and want to kind of talk about in a bit more depth. So Emily, what have you got for show and tell this week? This week, Ed, I have the second season of Feel Good, May Martin and Joe Hansen's sort of semi, I'd say even probably quasi-autobiographical, very personally inspired anyway, sitcom because I do think it is containing both situation and comedy in a really delightful mix, but it also has a really incredible grit running through it while still being like actually hilarious. So I was just blown away by this season. I thought it was superb because I, I quite liked the first season, but I found that at the end, it was almost making out what I think a genuinely problematic ending as unambiguous and sort of happy or I just felt it gave me the ick the very end and I was like ah oh, Jesus why so when the second season came around I was like hmm not too sure about this especially because Channel 4 dropped Feel Good after the first season and didn't renew it but Netflix 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 <laughs> and it swung in and took, took it up I think May Martin is phenomenally funny and just a really incredible performer because I don't think I've seen as subtle a performance that they do quite it's quite rare because I think when portraying someone who is traumatized the temptation I think for an actor is the idea of like oh go bigger you know mm. if it's important go big whereas actually their performance is incredibly subtle and they have a wonderful kind of like deadpan demeanor anyway. So they know they don't have to do a lot. And I also think that so often it's actually, you know, a performance is not just down to an actor. It's the relationship between the director and the DOP as well. It's the triparite balance. You have to kind of trust the director and the DOP, understand and view in your head what the shot will look like. So to know exactly the skill and, and the qualities that you need to bring to that take. So I just, I just think they're incredible and I'd love to see them in other roles. And it, it's just so blessedly queer as well. It manages to, and I worry that this sounds like a sort of right wing of wet dream, but they do poke fun at overly considered liberal slash radical hand wringing mm. um and which is quite refreshing because i think it also what's actually happening there is people being sort of self-obsessed it's not necessarily you know, where you fall on the line of politics it's more about it's a it's a character it's a human character flaw that we're kind of laughing at i think the way it depicts the comedy industry is unique in that i haven't seen it portrayed this way before and I think there are a lot of parallels to be drawn with I May Destroy You because I think I May Destroy You is very funny but it's very clearly drama and that manages to kind of poke at sort of publishing but it's really more of a kind of a stand-in for TV it's that sort of slight parallel move because I think it would just be almost too difficult to make TV about TV in that way. I mean, I think Michaela Cole is a, is a genius and incredibly bold and 
with every right to be, and she should be, um, and she managed to call out the entire industry when delivering her keynote at the end of the TV first. So I think maybe she was like, I just want to try, you know, point maybe is not actually me going at TV, it is about the culture. But I think what I really found so refreshing about Feel Good is that it's the first thing I've seen where I recognise stand-up. I mm. recognise, because I would like to think I know anything about stand-up. <laughs> you, you, you and your games and me and, me and my jokes. Yep. And in terms of the structure, because it's so often with anything that's sort of semi-autobiographical, like think about better things, Pamela Adlon as well. You sort of have the occasional friend and work comedy, but it never really seems to be beyond individuals who are the performers you know so you might have like i mean obviously in curb uh jeff is meant to be larry's manager but he doesn't really manage him mm-hmm. you know the whole point is that they're friends and just awful as each other and kind of true love that <laughs> withstands everything but it's the actual sector that feel good shows really neatly but what it does is shows the wider context and you know not just really predatory agents and and comics but the, the exploitation on every level like particularly emotionally and the audience as well is sort of you know they're like well you're laughing at this you know and I think it manages to portray in, similar to I May Destroy You, it's not just there's one big bad villain abuser, there's actually an awful lot of nuance and there's more than one <laughs> because that is always the way. And I found it, yeah, by turns like really moving, so funny. Like it's such a wonderful cast and like Jack Barry, um, who's sort of also playing a slight version of himself is like particularly delightful because he is the sort of like, he's basically the fool. And there's a lovely moment where they're both booked on a TV show and the direction just is so delightful because for, for apropos of nothing, seemingly for no reason, they come into shots skipping like hand, hand in hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what they would do. And then they sort of resume a, a walking pace and, and head into the studio. Charlotte Ritchie, I mean, I just think she's going like from strength to strength and she manages to play these sort of like, like every really nice girl you met at university who's mm-hmm. like a really solid friend and wasn't too perfect and was just a top laugh. So it's nice to see her kind of Catherine Harning herself um, because I think there's, there's typecast and then there's just being really fucking good at what you do <laughs> and that being, you know, a selection of, um, a selection of put upon every woman and yet she is just lovely and the very real trajectories of growth that both her character George and May have and it, it's genuinely well, will they, won't they? I don't think I've ever seen something where it focuses on a romantic relationship and I was genuinely surprised and kind of just how real it felt in terms of the outcome of their relationship. Like, do they 
stay together or should they be apart? And there is like equal weighting on both sides. And I think it's, you know, as a portrait of addiction, I think I, I, can't, I can't think of many things that are, that are better because it shows the kind of banality, the everydayness of it, the fact that it's so woven into comedy um, and that there isn't enough protection in play. You know, May is also not the only addict, and it's not just the people that she meets in um, rehab. Um, there are various other addicts that they that they come across. It, it's also shot really beautifully. I know this is it, this doesn't really sound like sort of criticism. I'm just like I really, lo- I really love it. I really love it. Oh, and her parents are just really great. So Lisa Kudrow um, plays May's mum. Wow. And, oh yeah, and. It just totally makes sense. And as a family that are really torn apart and brought together by the same thing, which is May's addiction and their ongoing recovery. Um, haven't really seen it sort of bettered. And there's something amazing about it being genuinely hopeful because at no point is it sentimental. There's real things at stake. And oh, you can just tell I, I love May Martin because when they describe themselves when they're asked how they identify and uh, they say as an anemic scarecrow um, <laughs> and often refer to themselves as a little bit of corn. I just, yeah, feel good will make you feel great. Yeah, it, it certainly sounds like super good. It's, it's not a show that I think I've heard of before because there's just so much TV now. And so stuff can uh, slip through the cracks. And also I was just trying to find out where it was even available in the US if it is. And it says uh, you can watch it on Eros Premium. And I have no idea <laughs> what that streaming service even is. Um, but apparently it's available through Amazon. But no, that, that, does, that does sound great. You, you were talking about how well you feel it captures stand-up. What kind of, in your opinion, are the worst examples of things like trying to depict stand-up oh where do I even start (laughs) it's all it's almost a bit like when you see particularly writers as well I finally caught up with one of my oldest friends the other week and it was delightful and we both really ripped into Greta Gerwig's Little Women because we can't stand it and she is a writer herself and she was like this is not a writing what that's not how writing works Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like yeah no that's a really good point and it's funny how more often than not it is someone kind of uh hiding their working quite literally because they want it to be sort of like aspirational it's like the dream of it rather than the reality of it and I think uh I'm dying up here which I know I keep (laughs) coming back to you because I just I'm so confounded by it because it's like this mix of actors and actual stand-ups um and none of the stand-up is funny and you're just like why why are there no stand-ups writing this (laughs) this is this is a tv writer's idea of stand-up it's also crucially like incredibly unfunny (laughs) like Mm. it's like a very serious drama and I kind of it's my real sort of I don't hate watch it, but I love it. It's such a hot mess because it really doesn't grasp what stand-up is like now or or ever. Because of course it's a period piece. It's like 
a rich and interesting premise. Everyone acts their socks off, and I think the actual characters are, are really great. But it's also just like this isn't this isn't it at all. And I think it's because mainly there just aren't good enough jokes. And God, there was one. Oh, was it the gold the gold digger? Hang on, let me just double check this. Yeah, gold digger. Oh my. Um, so gold digger, starring the the luminescent Julia Ormond and. Uh, your man Ben Barnes mm-hmm. <laughs> six parter which shows from varying different perspectives of this woman having a relationship with a much younger man and her family are convinced that he's only with her for her money and we keep kind of pulling back and forward and basically it's like could he possibly love you know as I previously mentioned the luminescent Julia <laughs> <laughs> love with Julia Roman like her money doesn't have anything to do with it but uh uh Gemma Jemima Rupa her name who I used to know from a lot of uh, ITV kids stuff um right. in Austin land um but she's one of those like immediately recognizable British character actors but she plays a stand-up and uh she's an alcoholic lesbian and the stand-up that she does is truly terrible and I think the thing about the onslaught of semi-autobiographical stand-up shows is because it's uh, it's making people's sets literal. You know, the majority of them are speaking as themselves or as their sort of comic persona. Mm. And the material that they've honed is good and funny, and it's a way of. But not not everyone uh, can can write. Who's a stand-up can write TV. I find it weird because I feel like it's more often not it's quite a lazy trope in the same way that it's like well the reason that we have so many cop shows is because a mystery is a good story device um and also for purpose of that point I will um I will talk more about that in uh, in SRS recommends um but you know where it's just like oh can I find a different angle on this you know, if you want someone to be able to speak their mind. And also the way that stand-up ends up being represented as, you know, a killer set. Because as much as I really liked Sophia's Child and I love Jenny Slate, but I think what's so strange about that final, the sort of like the, the big scene is where, you know, that is not how Jenny Slate is as a stand-up. She's mm. playing a kind of stand-up and she's essentially telling the truth rather than telling jokes. And I'm not saying that those two are, uh, I, I believe they can be uh, linked beautifully, but that is the craft, Ed. <laughs> that, is, that is the craft. Um, and it's meant to be this big release. Uh, same as, I mean, I cannot fucking stand Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And anyone, <laughs> if, you, if you are a woman in comedy, immediately someone will be like, oh, you know, two, two things are certain. One, someone will be like, I don't think women are funny. Mm-hmm. And, and or uh have you watched Marvel's Mrs. Maisel? I have, and it's a fucking dumpster fire. And that's what I found again to come back to feel good. Its representation is so beautiful because it shows how comedy is not therapy and relief from trauma. Comedy itself is incredibly traumatized. And the state of the industry is vult- vulturous. Um so 
oh, I, I, I mean, I need to stop talking because I feel like I could go on for another episode length about it. But thank you for asking me the question because I realise I have, surprise, surprise, a lot of feelings about it. Mm, yeah, I was just thinking that, you know, you, you said that feel good felt like a, a good representation of that. And I was thinking, yeah, it feels like something that, something that is, is fairly ubiquitous and that a lot of people like, watch stand-up specials particularly since netflix has kind of like really started pumping them out at an alarming rate um like it's a thing that everyone's aware of but like doesn't feel like something that's ever like particularly well depicted not even i mean not that anything's well depicted in our life but the comedy scene is like the the comedy night is just absolutely uh, horrendous and it's such a shame because sean mclaughlin who is the actor is a fantastic stand-up and i think i worry that people will be like Oh, that's just what he'd like. So, Ed, enough of my uh, many feelings about the representation of stand-up. What do you have for me this week? And for us, the, the listeners, not just me. <laughs> so what I have to share this week is a documentary by Rodney Asher called A Glitch in the Matrix, which uh, is currently available on Hulu here in the US. And uh, Rodney Asher, for people who are maybe unfamiliar with his work, he, he previously has directed a couple of feature documentaries. He's directed a lot of stuff over the years, but like his two previous most notable works were uh, Room 237, which is a documentary sort of about The Shining, but really about the the conspiracy theories that have grown around The Shining and uh, The Nightmare, which uh, is an extremely unsettling documentary about sleep paralysis, which uh, I would not recommend to people watch late at night. Very, very unsettling, uh, but very interesting. He's very, I, I find his his approach to documentary filmmaking very interesting because his approach tends to be that he will get several people who are very interested in or knowledgeable about or obsessed with a topic and have them kind of like talk uh, at length about it and kind of present the best possible argument for the thing that they believe and then the films themselves that kind of play off the tension between these different ideas uh, uh, these different perspectives on the subject and in a glitch in the matrix uh, that subject is simulation theory the theory that all of us are living in a simulation some people are you know real and some people are just npcs or um you know like the famous people in the world are like the real players or things like that you know and and uh, the film kind of explores this idea from a number of different ways. It, it explores the work of Philip K. Dick, who wrote about a lot of these kind of ideas, a lot of his works. A lot of his works are about kind of um, being trapped within augmented or, or false realities and seeing through them. Uh, obviously, it talks a lot about The Matrix, which um, a lot of people would probably cite as their first introduction to this idea because obviously it was a hugely successful movie and it's very much built upon the philosophical and uh, science fiction underpinnings of these ideas uh, going back to sort of like the, the 70s and, and earlier when people really started to kind of investigate the notions of, of uh, artificial realities. And the film kind of has a lot of different perspectives on this. You know, you have people who are philosophers who are discussing it from the more academic perspective. Uh, so they're, they're very much talking about it in terms of like 
uh, as the as kind of a uh, descendant of Plato's cave, and you know, kind of a, as an iteration on that, and the notions that these ideas have kind of always been around, and technologically we just kind of keep retrofitting them to whatever our newest technological idea is. Then you have, but then you also have people who genuinely believe that we live in a simulation or believe at some point in their life that we live in a simulation and has maybe have maybe outgrown that or maybe found some way of living in the world where they kind of minimize that aspect of themselves <laughs> in order to live like a normal human being and those are kind of fascinating because obviously there's like a really personal angle to it um where people are talking about how um maybe they realize oh like the way the reason why I thought that people around in the world weren't real and I was is because I was suffering from emotional problems and wasn't able to relate to people maybe that was a big part of it which is quite uh, interesting to explore from that angle and um, so it's like just in terms of the interview subjects that he brings in they're all very fascinating very interesting people and they offer different uh, perspectives on it but what I also really like about it is that um, Rodney Asher as a documentarian he always kind of fits his style to the subject um, he's not like an Errol Morris who kind of like you know you're always going to get the interrotron or whatever um, he very much switches up his visual language depending on what subject so in room 238 I think uh, 237 all of the footage in that movie is just like scenes from The Shining that he's kind of like chopping and screwing and kind of like chain messing around with uh, in this one there basically is no real world in it. Um, all of the interviews are conducted over Skype and this documentary, most of these interviews were conducted before the pandemic. So this wasn't a practical choice. It's clearly an artistic, I mean, it's also partly practical, you know, it's expensive to travel around, but um, you know, a lot of the, uh, all of the interviews are conducted via Skype. So they're all mediated through a digital lens and a digital format. Also a lot of the people he speaks to appear as digitally created avatars so he'll be talking to someone and they have like a giant dog's head which is like moving around as they're talking so again you're kind of like filtering this person's experience through um uh you know the avatars that we all create in our digital lives and any establishing shot that's being used to kind of like you know if someone's telling a story about going to the mall instead of going to that mall and filming kind of b-roll um he'll just like take footage from google earth and kind of have that be used as the establishing shot or they will have computer animation to kind of illustrate people going around their day to day and i think that's a really interesting choice to really amp up the sense of isolation that is inherent in the notion of simulation theory because i think so much of it is kind of built upon profound loneliness and solipsism and just kind of like the belief that you are the only real person in the world or one of the only real people in the world that is an incredibly lonely idea and something that I think is only uh, exacerbated by the internet and social media and, and those elements are kind of like brought into it and, and also brings in notions about you know violence in media what happens when violent images are fed into someone who believes they're only the real person the people around them are all expendable what you know what are the real life impacts of that um so it's a very kind of expansive documentary you know it feels like it's going to be very uh singular and, and focused on like maybe one or two things but it kind of encompasses a lot and 
I think um, Rodney Escher does a really good job of jumping between all of these different ideas and bouncing between these different interviewees and the, you know, kind of getting their perspectives uh, in a way that I found consistently very compelling as someone who thinks that, you know, anytime anyone talks to me about simulation theory, I immediately just like glaze over. Like it's mm. such an uninteresting <laughs> subject to me as a person. Cause to me, it boils down to like, either we live in a simulation or we don't. If we do, I'm still probably going to be nice to people because <laughs> it doesn't really <laughs> make any difference to me if we're in a simulation or not. And like, you still have to live with people around you, you know, like whether or not they're quote unquote real doesn't matter. And I, but I, I do think the people that he speaks to are interesting and in what they kind of like bring out and the various kind of like threads that he follows are compelling uh, in and of themselves. And particularly once it gets into the real world impact of the notion of simulation theory, um, which is uh, explored in extremely upsetting detail uh, during a, a, through one participant who um, I won't spoil for um, anyone who wants to watch the movie, but it, ha it has a history of violence that is kind of connected to his worldview and, and like how that manifested. And uh, it makes for one of the more disturbing sequences I've seen in a movie in a long time, which uh, again is kind of like heightened by the digital aesthetic of the movie and how alienating it all feels to begin with and how it all feels like the whole thing is taking place in this like unknowable void. So I think like, like one of the things in it that's really, really great um, and this kind of like ties into the Philip K. Dick stuff is like there's a, a segment in the movie where they kind of like talk about how Philip K. Dick is often held up as this guy who was very prescient in all of his talking about um, totalitarian observa uh, surveillance states and you know augmented reality and all this sort of stuff but that what is often ignored in discussions is how his stories are not just about those societies and those situations it's about incredibly human stories of people being trapped within them and what that does to a human and I think that tension is also at the heart of a glitch in the matrix is very much about very human stories of people being trapped in a worldview that is inherently very nihilistic and isolating and alienating and you know how some people are able to escape that or at the very least learn to live with it in a way that doesn't like completely destroy their lives and some people are not and it can be very dangerous and um, I think the sense of humanity that emerges from a documentary which has a deliberately very alienating aesthetic is like its real achievement for me and also why it bummed me out so much <laughs> why I made the mistake of watching it like at nine o'clock last night and it finishing up at 11 thinking I really don't want this to be the last thing I watch before I go to sleep because it's going to really mess with my head um, which is a, a wholehearted endorsement of it like sometimes you want to be bummed out by a movie or you want to have like it's just like a really bad time watching a movie because it means it's had an effect on you but yeah it's it's a really um effective piece of work and i think like like ash's other movies it it, it does really interesting things with its aesthetic in a way that i don't think a lot of 
documentaries and documentary filmmakers are really bothering to these days. Mm. So we'll end this episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? The most recent episode at the time of this recording of Mandatory Redistribution Party, which is one of my favourite podcasts, uh, helmed by uh, top lads all round and comedians themselves, Sean Morley and Jack Evans. And I really enjoyed the podcast, but I think I also particularly loved this one because it's all about Jonathan Creek. And Uh. they try to um, answer the question, is Jonathan Creek propaganda? And (laughs) what sounds like uh, sort of almost like BoJack Horseman-esque quiz show title ends up being (laughs) a a really fascinating discussion of representation in in tv and film of essentially laundering police's reputation there's a lot of kind of uh, discussion of the nomenclature of how to refer to jonathan creek because is he a magician because he just writes the tricks but he doesn't do the actual magiciany bit um but i think they have fascinating discussions as ever and it's just lovely hearing two people make each other laugh <laughs> as well cool i will recommend a movie that i watched uh, a few days after I watched Space Jam as kind of like I was trying to think of if I should watch any more movies or if I, I should just kind of like chuck them all in the bin. The movie that I watched that kind of really worked as a lovely palate cleanser to that, which was in Mir and Ayer's Mississippi Marsala, which is a, a romance set in Mississippi in, 19, uh, in the early 90s, um, starring uh, Sarita Chowdhury and Denzel Washington. Uh, Sarita Chowdhury plays a Ugandan-born Indian woman whose family was ejected from Uganda when Idi Amin uh, took over and then her family moved to Mississippi. She kind of has a chance encounter meeting with Denzel Washington and then they start uh, seeing each other and it's very much about their romance and the tension that then emerges between his family and her family, you know, like between uh, and exploring the tension that then exists between sort of black Americans and sort of these uh, Indian immigrants who are coming over and, you know, like black people who are native to America, but Indian people who are often seen as kind of like a model minority and kind of have perceptions and perceptions of themselves as maybe being closer to white people. And, you know, it's very, very fascinating in terms of those discussions, but it's also just a real um, sensual romance. Like there's great chemistry between Chowdhury and Washington they're super sexy together and you really feel for them. You really want things to work out for them as in the best of best romances. And uh, it's just a really beautiful movie as well. Like Miranaya really um, makes great use of the real powerful sense of heat in Mississippi and just like everyone in it looks so kind of like gorgeous and it's so alive and full of color. It's just really, really wonderful. Uh, And um, it is available on certain video sharing websites uh, if you were to search for them. Uh, I won't say which one because uh, the moderators for it might take it down if people start, uh, if the word gets out. But um, if, you, if, you, if you were to go to a search engine and type in Mississippi Marcella full movie, <laughs> you'll find it fairly quickly. Uh, I recommend it. I think it's, it's just really, really terrific.
If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player and Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.